Good afternoon. I'm Frank Ling, and this is the year in edition of Berkeley Grox. That's right. It's our look back at the year in science and technology. Coming up on this show, drunken flies, fit grandpas, and parental discrepancies. Also joining us is Sir David King to talk about the threat of global warming. In addition, you can find out how does a chameleon avoid its predators. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokotron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. Right here on the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. Uh, wow. Another year has uh, come by. Huh? It just it seems to fly by. Like, you know, you know, when you're young, you know, it seems like a year takes forever. Yeah. And then when you're old, it seems like it takes about a week. But, you know, I'm pretty excited, actually. I think uh, the best time of the year is actually about to come. Is, is that right? Why is that? Macworld. <laughs> yes, Macworld. How can you forget Macworld? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm ready to bow at the altar of Steve Jobs. <laughs> you think he's going to get more mini this year? <laughs> I, I'm not sure how much much smaller he can make the iPod. It's already gotten quite uh, quite a bit small. Yeah, I, I thought at some point it's just going to fit in your ear, right? All of it? I, I think at some point he's going to make it just part of our genetic code. Oh. And then we don't really even have to, you know... We can reproduce iPods, which will be good. Uh, all part of his uh, plan to take over the world again. What was the best thing that happened this year? Oh, well, so far. So far, you know, <laughs> with only, you know, a couple of days left in the year. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, was, uh, I was quite pleased by the year in science. I think, you know, we had, the, you know, the shuttle launch again and then stop. But you know, that, was, that was a brief, nice return. It's just a break with wings, you know. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's been, it's been a fascinating year. All kinds of uh, very cool things. Yeah, very encouraging. Right, right. Uh, finally getting some support for stem cells, finally. Right. Uh, you, even though I guess there's all, there was that uh, whole snafu a while back about, uh, you know, intelligent design. I guess it's huh. still kind of going on, right? Well, it's an evolving process, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Except for the proponents of the, <laughs> the theory. I yeah. think they're devolving. <laughs> Not really sure how it works. Those uh, those don't tend to last very long. Yeah. <laughs> With times, man. Yeah, well, it's all it's all part of a selection process, so we'll see who's more uh, Darwinian. So, anyways, uh, any uh, last bits of news for the year? Uh, well, there's always uh, very fascinating bits of news for the year. Um, I guess. Uh, by the way, how was your Christmas? Uh, my Christmas, it was uh, um, as usual. I guess uh, we don't really celebrate in our family; just take it easy. Okay. I, I think that's what Jesus would do. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, what would Jesus do? <laughs> take it easy, I think. Kick back with a beer and uh, learn about science. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, what do we have for science then? So here's a question for you. Who's your daddy? <laughs> I think he goes by the name of Mr. Lee. <laughs> uh, Mr. Lee, okay. Well, there are like, what, a few hundred million of them? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> one of the more recent studies shows that uh, 1 in 25 dads are not the real father, actually. <laughs> Okay. Well, I, th- I think I know at least 25 people, so... <laughs> <laughs> Statistics can range from anything from 1% to as much as 30% of uh, people finding uh, their parents not to be uh, who they really are. Ooh, okay. This recent study from the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health shows that it's about uh, 4% or so, 1 in 25. Mm. This is a phenomenon that I guess people should not ignore as uh, DNA profiling becomes more and more prevalent. Uh, I think at this point it's uh, over 300,000 and uh, tests are made per year now. Hmm. 
And so, uh, you know... Yeah, I watched Jerry Springer, and <laughs> it's a good indication. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, it turns out a lot of these times are uh, inadvertently um, discovered. For example, you're finding out uh, if you have Alzheimer's or, uh, or uh, you know, a preponderance for a heart attack in your family, and you find out, oh... Hmm, maybe my dad's not really here. <laughs> right. So you're going to live. Yeah. <laughs> Which is good news. Anyways. Uh, the bad news is your father is a prison inmate. Uh, it all works out well. <laughs> so anyways, I, I guess um, these are some of the issues that uh, people have to keep in mind uh, as um, these tests reveal uh, more than uh, you might really want to know. Uh, I've, I guess I've never really wanted to know anything, so <laughs> I'll just keep my ears, you know, shut. If you just want to be safe, uh, you can uh, check out a recent article in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health. All right, well, uh, here's a little bit of news, I guess, for all those uh, people imbibing quite vigorously during the holiday season. Yo. <laughs> <laughs> you say that knowingly. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you a big uh, drinker? I'm about to start. Okay. <laughs> you know, give it up by not taking it up is all I can say. <laughs> well, so it turns out actually researchers have um, actually linked a number of genes for uh, tolerance to alcohol and actually related this to actually the uh, rate of alcoholism. So the more tolerant you are, the more likely you become an alcoholic, is that right? That's correct, right. Because if you're more tolerant, you're more likely to drink a lot more uh-huh. to get the same effect. And uh, researchers at uh, University of California at San Francisco, Ulrike Huberlin's team, have actually uh, looked at this in the fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster. And uh, what they've shown is actually that uh, there's a particular gene uh, which they've dubbed hangover. Uh, and uh, this gene basically allows the flies to tolerate more alcohol. And uh, it's kind of fascinating because actually they did a kind of cute experiment to try and assay how, uh, you know, tolerant these flies were. They put them at the top of a spiral column Mm -hmm. and they measured how long it takes them to reach the bottom. Okay. So if if they're more drunk, they'll get to the bottom quicker because they're just falling down this column, right? Right. Whereas if they're not drunk, they can stay at the top, fly around a bit. Oh, wow. So they got them drunk, poured them into the top of the column, and then (laughs) separated them out. (laughs) And they did this selection process, kind of like column chromatography, except for flies. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little bit bigger than molecule, I guess. <laughs> and uh, and there you go. Then they then they were able to select out um, tolerant uh, flies and breed them selectively. And uh, there you go. I wonder if that means uh, it's better for humans to uh, have this gene or not. I'm well, sure the alcohol industry would like them too. Right, right. Well, I think uh, at least uh, if if people are going to find out whether they're more tolerant to alcohol, it's just sort of an indication that they should watch out as they have a greater risk of developing alcoholism. Right, another. Uh, yeah. Liver diseases and stuff, <laughs> I guess. Sclerosis of the liver has gotten a bit of a bad rap lately. <laughs> What's so bad about being hard? It, it grows back, right? <laughs> right. I mean, there's some parts of your organ you want to have hard, you know? <laughs> or your body. <laughs> anyway, we're getting a lo- little loopy at the end of the year here. but <laughs> So, uh, anyway, this is fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Nature. So, Charles, did you get any pets for Christmas? Uh, no, I'm actually allergic to a lot of animals. Really? Mm. Or maybe they're allergic to you. <laughs> ah, and they're using their mind powers to uh, pass that along to me. Have you ever wondered uh, if cats like sweet stuff? Um, I think they do. 
I mean, I'm... Well, you, you just fed them some Snickers or something? <laughs> well, they just so cute and furry. You, it would just seem like analogous that they were like sweet things. Actually, one of the great things this year was uh, PLOS Genetics came out, mm-hmm. the, the uh, Public Library Science Journal, and in their first issue, they showed that cats actually lacked a preference for sweet stuff. Really? Right. Oh, okay. They uh, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, lacked the genes that have the uh, receptors for sweet uh, taste. Huh, this is actually fascinating because the, uh, the reason why... Uh, they thought humans have uh, the sweet uh, taste is just because there's such a low abundance of you know carbohydrates in the uh, environment that you want to have this craving for sugars. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I guess it's helpful for uh, a lot of people, huh? <laughs> Apparently not for cats. I guess they, they live in the uh, sugar mine somewhere. <laughs> Maybe cats are adapted not to uh, get fat or something. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Although I was recently reading about some cat was, which was like recorded like 15 pounds or something, or some enormous, ginormous, I guess. Yes, big cat. <laughs> Garfield, I think you call it. <laughs> so this is an interesting work. Actually, on a similar note, catnip is something that cats seem really attractive doing this is from a plant that's very similar to a basil oregano and a spearmint and the uh, the main ingredient uh nepilalactone uh, apparently is what drives them uh, so wild Ooh, okay. or actually it has a more of a calming effect on them like a, um i guess chamomile so uh this is um you mean chamomile chamomile um <clears throat> so this is like one of the interesting things where cats have an affinity for a particular chemical but there seems to be no uh, a physiological benefit for uh, ingesting it or smelling it. Mm. Well, okay, very cool. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> not cool for the cat because they can't enjoy the Snickers, but <laughs> <laughs> you have to give them catnip instead. Yeah. <laughs> so I was in the very first issue of Plus Genetics. All right. So uh, are you a uh, fitness guru? Uh, sometimes I eat. Sometimes I. Uh, Walk away from a computer. That's, I think, all you really need. Yeah. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think, you've <laughs> satisfied none of them. <laughs> Turns out regular exercise, of course, keeps a lot of people fit. Haven't people been saying that for a long time? <laughs> yes, indeed. But uh, what's not as clear is exactly how fit you can get based on your genetic makeup. Oh, really? So uh, there are certain limitations with your genes, I guess. Uh, it turns out, at least uh, with a particular type of uh, enzyme called the angiotensin-converting enzyme, ACE, mm-hmm. Um, two different types of these, this enzyme exists, and uh, one, which is called D for deletion, mm-hmm. actually uh, results in people having a better uh, ability to gain the benefits of exercise. Really? Yes. So does this mean you, is it a receptor or a... Or a well, so uh, angiotensin is actually a hormone, uh-huh. and I guess the enzyme converts this hormone to uh, something that the body utilizes for increasing blood pressure or whatnot. Right. Yeah. So it's actually quite fascinating because... Uh, uh, the ones that have the uh, opposite counterpart gene, the I for insertion gene, mm-hmm. I, uh, they basically have, uh, le- they're more likely to develop uh, difficulties uh, later on in life. So even uh, even if they decide to exercise, they might not get as much of a benefit as those with the D copies. Wow. Uh, so is this something uh, that's distributed throughout the human population or is it uh, with uh, affinity with certain uh you know, races of people, or I'm actually not sure. I mean, uh, it it may well be, but I think uh, uh, it's probably just uh, you know dependent on who your parents are. Very nice. As most things are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't your health like fifty uh, percent determined by genetics or something? I, I think that's what they say, but fifty percent of what? I don't know. <laughs> that's always a good safe number. Half. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> it's either genetics or environment. All right. <laughs> okay. So anyway, fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of the Journal of the American Medical Association. And that is all for our look at current developments in the world of science. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to at 90.7 FM. 
coming up, Sir David King talks about global warming, so stay tuned. back to Berkeley Rocks. While the debate continues in the U.S. whether we should join the Kyoto Protocol in reducing greenhouse gas emissions, many countries around the world have already started to adopt measures for reducing carbon dioxide levels. Well, joining us today is a very special guest, Professor David King, science advisor to Tony Blair. Professor King, thanks for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. It's a big pleasure. Pleased to be with you. To um, put us in context, could you tell us uh, how did you become interested in climate science and a little bit about your background in research? Well, I, I started with my research. I'm, uh, I'm a chemical physicist or a physical chemist. I sit between physics and chemistry, study solid surfaces and uh, at a very fundamental level. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so my professionally, I've always been an academic research scientist until... Uh, to the year 2000 when I was headhunted for the, uh, the government job that I now have. And my, my interest in climate science, I would say, really began when I was head of chemistry at Cambridge University in the UK. Um, and within the chemistry department, we had a significant atmospheric sciences group. Um, the group was established to model the ozone layer, quite a complicated modeling process because of the number of chemical reactions taking place up in the troposphere. But the interest from the troposphere went on to the atmosphere to study global warming. So um, we had a fair background and understanding of that before I joined the government. And were you also involved with um, the, uh, the formulation of the Montreal Protocol earlier on? Uh, the, the, the Montreal Protocol on uh, ozone, no, I wasn't involved in that and uh, have, have never, prior to my present position in government, I have never been involved in uh, either the uh, political side or the side of the science community putting information into the political system. So we've seen destruction uh, from um, eroding beaches, uh, the ice sheet melting, and uh, more recently, um, Hurricane Katrina, which has uh, wreaked havoc here in the U.S., these are more of the obvious signs that uh, global warming is taking a foothold, but what are some of the less obvious ones but equally um, uh, disturbing effects uh, we've observed? Well, I I think the um, the rise of sea levels is, uh, in the long term, probably the most worrying of the climate change impacts. Um, I mean, what what we're concerned about, if, if we go back in history and go through what we understand about the glacial and interglacial periods over the last million years, and there's now a very detailed understanding of change from that period. We know that uh, in each of the uh, warm period, ice period uh, changes, 
the, the sea levels varied by something like 120 meters around the Earth. Mm -hmm. Now, as we move forward in time and, uh, and global warming continues, we can anticipate that uh, the remaining ice on land masses such as Greenland and Antarctica right. will begin to melt off and, uh, and this will push ocean sea levels up very substantially. The second point, of course, is that as we warm the oceans, uh, the expansion of the seawater that accompanies the warming will mean rising sea levels as well. Something like 80% of our global cities are built on coastlines. And we're very sensitive to sea levels. Um, if, you, if you take any typical tropical storm, through, for example, or a hurricane, um, a simple rise in sea levels, leaving cities where they are, will put these cities at much greater risk. But in, in our case, um, the Thames is a good example of this. The Thames is a tidal river, which means that we get both fluvial flooding, flooding from the land, and we also get flooding from the tide, and this puts, uh, puts London at risk. We, we do have a good defense system, the Thames Barrier, uh, and we're very heavily dependent on that. There, there is a, a certain number of uh, global warming skeptics, and uh, in fact there are some people who are quite hostile to the notion that humans are causing uh, these changes, uh, and often um, in the media, we get people saying that weather cycles are uh, geological in nature and that humans have no influence or uh, uh, these policies will put people out of work and um, take the economy down. Uh, but what are some of the better ways for scientists to um, get our concerns out into the public and have a rational discussion about this? Right. I think, I think uh, what you're largely talking about, especially in the United States, is the influence of lobbyists. I mean, it's, it's very much lobbyists who, who, have a, who have a big influence here. Essentially, if we come back at them with the following, I find it's very effective. The understanding of our climate system is now remarkably mature. It all goes back to the French mathematician Fourier. And Fourier asked himself a very simple question. He said, what, what uh, determines the average global temperature? Well, it's got to be incoming energy from the sun and outgoing radiation back from the hot Earth into space. And that balance is achieving the current global temperature. But he then asked a very simple question, but what if we turn off the solar energy coming into the Earth, which we do every time the Earth rotates and we end up having a night period, then we should expect the radiation back into space to lead to a very significant cooling of the Earth. And he concluded that that would be about 30 to 40 degrees centigrade cooling. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, nighttime, daytime temperatures don't differ very much. And so Fourier's conclusion was that the Earth's atmosphere acts to absorb heat during the daytime and then uh, uh, submit heat back to the Earth during the night. And this uh, very much lessens the difference between daytime and nighttime temperature. That is the origin of the greenhouse effect. And we're saying the greenhouse effect is what we need. As we then move forward in time, you come to, I think, two critical points. 1860, um, the British scientist Tyndall measured the absorption of heat by the Earth's atmosphere uh, directly, and he found a very surprising result, that the major gases in our atmosphere, oxygen and nitrogen, do not absorb any 
of the what we now call black body radiation from the Earth mm-hmm. uh, that radiates energy out into space. And in fact, we even understand in detail why O2 and N2 do not absorb infrared energy. Um, and so he pointed out it's the minority gases, carbon dioxide and water vapor, that are the greenhouse gases. Now, we're almost there because if you then come to Arrhenius, he said, if we continue to use fossil fuels, we, mankind, will change the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And if we were to double it, he said, the temperature rise on the Earth, based on Fourier's equations, would be around 5 degrees centigrade. Mm -hmm. And that's what the current climate change scientific community are saying, but with considerably more detailed understanding uh, today. If you say to anyone who doesn't understand or believe that, well, if you add a blanket over your bed or a duvet uh, at night, you know very well that your temperature rises. Uh, and that is the sum total of, uh, of this effect. So I, I think um, we really have uh, a, a relatively simple model explanation for what is happening with a prediction back in 1896 that it would happen. Mm-hmm. We now know that global temperatures have risen uh, even in the last 30 years by, on average, 0.7 degrees centigrade, and the effect is happening. Carbon dioxide levels... Well, uh, this year we're at 379 parts per million, and during every previous warm period over the last million years, the levels have been at around 270 parts. So we know we're in excess of any value for the last uh, million years, approximately, at least. The consequences of that have to be global warming. Looking at the impacts of global warming and trying to predict what they will be is a very difficult job. And that's what the current scientific community are busy doing. But they're no longer arguing about whether global warming is occurring, whether carbon dioxide levels have increased, those two things have been measured very accurately, or whether there's a connectivity between the two. That's also been demonstrated very clearly. The argument is simply about what will the impacts on each of our countries be as we move forward in time. I think that that is pretty clear. Mm-hmm. But it, at the same time, when you're up against a lobbyist who may be um, receiving money for an, from an organization that is actually paying him or her to go out and try and find cracks in the argument, you're not in the position of trying to persuade them. Uh, you're just in the position of demonstrating to other people who are prepared to listen that these people are simply lobbyists without a real argument behind what they're saying. Some people have speculated that the Earth can act as a heat sink to uh, mitigate these um, warming phenomena. Um, Are these theories uh, valid or have they been discounted? Well, I I think it's simply uh, incorrect. It's not not a theory. The the Earth uh, absorbs heat but re-radiates heat out. Uh, I mean, the, the point about this as, a, as an example of the kind of comment that comes forward is the following. The scientific community dealing with the modeling of climate change includes uh, about a thousand of the cleverest people that you really can meet. Mm-hmm. And they have thought through in detail every possible impact on uh, climate change. They've included things like volcanic activity, variation in solar energy, um, the uh, kind of effect that you're talking about. These have all been included in the model. 
But the final result of all that is really not very different from where we were in 1896. There are small refinements. The big changes come when we look at very big positive feedback events. So uh, this is really the big problem as we move forward in time. For example, the, the tropical forests are, of course, a massive pump for carbon dioxide and keep carbon dioxide levels down. But as we move forward in time, is there going to be a tipping point where the forests become denuded by changes in rainfall pattern or by overheating? Because if that happens, the forests will become net sources of carbon dioxide and we get runaway global warming. Mm -hmm. There are several of these runaway phenomena that still need to be carefully examined. Another one of them is uh, methane hydrates at the ocean floor. If the ocean temperatures warm up significantly, there would be a point where methane would come bubbling up into the atmosphere. And of course, methane is a more serious greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So the, the, the problem, I think, is rather the reverse, that scientists have taken into account all of these effects, but trying to model the non-linear terms associated with positive feedback is actually a big challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think those positive feedbacks have tended to be underestimated. So you mentioned non-linear effects, and that's the concept that um, often... Um, a little challenging to uh, convey, um, given that a small change in temperature may lead to a small change in the environment, but a further change of the same magnitude could lead to a drastically uh, different effect. Do you have some analogy, perhaps, to uh, uh, explain this? An example of that is uh, in the Indian subcontinent. The Indian agriculture is very heavily dependent on monsoon behavior. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the monsoon in one year is 10% below average, um, there is a failure in the agricultural system and, uh, and there's potential starvation. If the monsoon is 10% above the average, there's massive flooding and, uh, and consequences are increased fatality. So the Indian system is very dependent on a narrow range of variation of the monsoon. And it's quite clear that as the baseline temperature increases through global warming, the factors like the monsoon are going to be critically dependent on So these are very difficult problems. And at the same time, we are aware of the fact that these weather systems are very sensitive. One of the um, examples that um, has received some attention recently was the uh, thermohaline current, the conveyor belt in the Atlantic. Could you explain uh, what exactly it does? Okay, so the the thermohaline current, which is often uh, called the Gulf Stream, conveys heat around the the world, and it it, it has two major effects. First of all, let me say, it depends critically on the salt content of the ocean, Mm -hmm. Um, and it has the effect of conveying heat in very large sums from the tropics into the northern hemisphere. And uh, the result of doing this is twofold. Uh, It is to cool the tropics, and secondly, it's to uh, warm up the northern hemisphere. So uh, around uh, Europe, and Britain is clearly uh, benefiting enormously from this itself, temperatures are much higher than they would otherwise be. And we're talking about perhaps a 20 degree centigrade difference. Uh, So if this uh, great heat conveyor 
were for some reason to switch off, then uh, clearly it would make a dramatic difference to climates around the world. Not only would uh, Northern Europe freeze up uh, and the northeast coast of the United States, but we would also see significantly greater heating in the uh, areas around the equatorial region. So as the Earth warms up, we'd have this anomaly of seeing possibly lower temperatures in the northern hemisphere, but then even higher temperatures in the equatorial region. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's the concern. Now, of course, the real question is, is that likely to happen? We know that about 8,000 years ago, uh, there was a point where the thermohaline current came to a standstill. Um, uh, and the reason for that is now, I think, reasonably well understood. There was a great ice dam holding uh, a great freshwater lake uh, over what we now call Canada, uh, which unfroze during the period moving from the, the last glacial period to the current interglacial. And as that water was released into the Northern Hemisphere Ocean, um, the salinity changed, the salt content changed dramatically, and that was sufficient to switch off the thermohaline current. And the result was uh, a rapid freezing up again, actually. The warming up from the last ice age mm -hmm. was halted for several uh, hundreds of years until the thermohaline current began again. Well, thank okay. you so much. Thank you for your That's time. A pleasure. And we were just talking to Sir David King, science advisor to UK Prime Minister Tony Blair. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out how a chameleon escapes. So stay tuned. to last week's question of the week. How do chameleons blend into the environment? Their skin pigment changes so it adapts to the color or the pigment. And that's how I escape from Miss P. Mm, Alright there, Mr. Anderson. So, you've solved the matrix. But have you solved the eigenfunction? Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer... Email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't escape the matrix, but your eigenvalues might just be real. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and have a great new year, and stay tuned for more music. <laughs>